Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Melanin Margin, the weekly chat show where conversations about race are never off the table. We're your hosts, Andre Williams. And Daquan Wilson. So let's get into this week's conversation. What's hot on the table this week? After five years, Grammy award-winning rapper Kendrick Lamar released a brand new, highly anticipated album entitled Mr. Morale and the Big Steppers. The album garnered over 60 million streams during its launch, making it have the record of the largest amount of first-day streams in 2022 so far. Despite this, the album has received mixed reviews. Some of the criticism stems from the inclusion of fellow rapper Kodak Black on the album, who has been accused of rape in the past and pleaded guilty for first-degree assault and battery charges. However, a large amount of the critique of Lamar's recent works stems from the song Auntie Diaries, which is described by Slate as Lamar's, quote, most controversial song in years, end quote. In the song, Lamar retells his experience with his two trans relatives, his complicated journey of growth, and grapples with transphobia in the Black community and Black church. However, the controversy comes in from his use of language and pronouns. In the song, he used the F-slur about 10 times and repeatedly dead-named and misgendered his relatives. As trans activist Raquel Willis tweeted, quote, if you think dead-naming, misgendering, and wielding slurs is the pinnacle of LGBTQ plus allyship, you got a lot of work to do, boo. Why must cishet men always push a boundary with us and expect us to be grateful, end quote. Though there were some that came to Lamar's defense with sentiments such as, Lamar's usage is intended to show his growth and it was necessary to say the word for people to get it so people should just get over it or just not listen to it. So Andre, that begs the question, is Auntie Diaries trans allyship? Um, not at all. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm getting really tired of people that are not a part of a specific marginalized community using the trauma of others to show their growth or wokeness. Like Kendrick Lamar is not a part of the LGBTQIA community as far as we are aware. And regardless of his intention, his blatant disregard for the trauma of his trans relatives he used to line his pockets and boost his sales among woke audiences is a clear example of cishet entitlement. Um, yet again, someone who is not a part of a community believes that their voice is more important to streamline to the masses than the actual people who suffer at the hands of specific forms of oppression. Um, it was wholly unnecessary for Lamar to use the F slur and to dead name his relatives for the message to be achieved. The whole point of allyship and advocacy is to aid marginalized communities in the fight for progress. It's about using whatever privilege you hold, be it straight privilege, male privilege, white privilege, cis privilege, and so on, to magnify the voices of those who are unheard due to their oppressed standing in society. That was not what Kendrick Lamar did. What he did was use the struggle of his trans relatives to make him look good to the media. And what he did was give permission to the masses to sing, 
play and cover a song that exploits the pain of his trans relatives and possibly continues to traumatize them. Jason um, Lambers, an adolescent psychiatrist, states that dead naming a trans person, quote, can be reminding them of the period in their lives before they could take steps to affirm who they are. Dead naming might bring them back into those more negative times in their lives. And often that gender dysphoria, the distress that comes from one's sex assigned at birth, not lining up with their true gender identity can be associated with depression and anxiety. And to add insult to injury, I'm sure that the two trans relatives that Kendrick is referring to in this song, having gotten a check or any mm. kind of profit from the song, if, if they were even consulted about it in the first place, Daquan, and Again, he could have easily talked about grappling with transphobia without using homophobic slurs or death naming people. But what really gets me is how badly some of these supposed allies want hats on the back from marginalized communities they help protect. These allies want to center their own straight guilt, white guilt, cis guilt, and want to talk about how hard it was for them to confront their own bigoted ideology without taking into consideration the fact that there are people who actually live the consequences of that bigotry. Like you don't get brownie points for unpacking your problematic mindset. You don't get a right. pat on the back for not being an asshole and you don't deserve flowers or praise for being a decent fucking human being. Like if Kendrick Lamar was writing a song about unpacking his own bigotry with a focus on the people who have been affected by it. He should have partnered with those people or other members of the community or literally fucking Googled how to reflect on your bigotry without using the language of the oppressor to do so. Like, and I don't really think that it's that hard to know whether or not you should or shouldn't say a certain slur. Like, Daquan, I go by this rule. If no one would ever think to use a particular derogatory word as a slur against me, then that's a good indication that I shouldn't be saying the word. But I want to pass the question back to you. Is this song true allyship? And is it ever appropriate for cishet people to say the F slur? I'm going to have to go with no on both accounts. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the most frustrating parts about this is the fact that Kendrick Lamar is like, easily top five greatest lyricist of this time and yet he still couldn't find a way <laughs> to just like create something without saying the word like <laughs> that's just baffling to me because like honestly there are so many different ways he could have went about it people are literally saying that there are so many different ways that you could have gotten this point across without saying it and it's like use something else word it in a different <laughs> way literally anything like if you're that great of a lyricist you should be able to like on the flip of a dime switch something up and like find you know unique and nuanced ways of describing these different types of concepts and so that's why it's so frustrating beyond just like that he shouldn't have been saying it in the first place yeah and i also think that i agree with you that this is something that's, you know, allyship is supposed to be amplifying voices. Yes. It's not supposed to be you taking your, you know, privilege and voicing over others. Because the crazy part is, is 
I remember being on Twitter and somebody was like, y'all shouldn't dog Kendrick Lamar and cancel him because, you know, he's doing something that nobody does. Like nobody talks about transness and gayness and all that really? stuff. And I'm like, there are literal trans and gay and bisexual and queer rappers, even mainstream rappers. And it's like, the problem is, isn't, Nobody's talking about it. The problem is you're not listening. And so in this situation, this was a prime time for him to literally partner with somebody. Mm -hmm. Or even my biggest thing is I have not heard any perspectives from his relatives at all. Were they consulted? Mm -hmm. Did they have any say? Because, mm -hmm. you know, if this is a song about them and their trauma and they were like, you know what? I'm fine with it, whatever. Mm -hmm. Then like, all right, that's that's what it is. People can still have critiques of it because it's public art that you put out and people can critique that. And that's what I think this is. So many people are thinking that this is just, you know, just different types of criticism that has no base. No, this is a critique. Nobody's trying to cancel Kendrick Lamar or anything like that. People are literally saying just this was not it. Frankly, <laughs> and from this, you know, I think that even in the song, he was talking about how hypocritical it is that kind of clicked for him that he said this Fsler so many times, but then got mad at a white girl for saying the N word at his concert. And so when he makes that type of hypocrisy known, people are allowed to call out his further hypocrisy of then still using the F slur. It's like, oh, I don't use the F slur anymore, but use it 10 more times to show that <laughs> you don't use it anymore. Like, what sense does that make? So like you said, if nobody wields this slur against you, if you are not the part of the community that this slur comes from, it's not yours to reclaim or use at all, period. I fully agree. And I think that honestly, to even add another layer to that too, like, even if those particular trans relatives did give him permission, trans people are not monoliths. Right. Like they aren't representative of the entire community. So even if they said, oh yeah, say the F, say the F slur all the, all the time. Say it all, fuck it all, just say it all the time. That's say cool it for them. The song. Yeah, that's cool for them, but that still doesn't make it okay. Just like if some black uh, uh, black person gives a white person, oh yeah, you can say the N word around me or whatever the case may be, that doesn't, that doesn't bother me. Yeah, it doesn't bother them, but it's still wrong. Right. Like it's still recognized as an issue. And I think that it's really frustrating to me that people just don't understand how to leave shit alone. That you, this literally, I mean, like everybody wants to say something. Everybody, oh, it's art or it's this, it's that, it's whatever. It's like there are so many people, so many gay artists who have talked about being gay without having to use that word. Without having right. to use it whatsoever. They've talked about the struggles of being gay. They've sung about it. They've rapped about it. They've written about it. All those things without ever having to mention the F slur. But you, a cishet man, think, oh, yes, <laughs> I can use it because I'm grown. I've grown. I'm not that, in, not that person anymore. And it's like, it just, it's not, the math isn't mathing. It's not mathing at all. And like, speaking of that, I remember watching this valedictorian speech of this I think high schooler in Florida, because, you know, they have that don't say gay bill and all yeah. of that stuff. They told their story about their identity, but instead of saying gay, they were talking about having curly hair. And mm 
the societal pressure to straighten it. And so that was a way he got his message across without actually saying the words gay because, you know, Florida is being Florida right now. But that's, we've had that conversation so many (laughs) times. But that just proves the point. A literal high schooler knows how to just like use some wordplay, use some synonyms, like take that broad concept, think about what's at the core of it, and then using some type of other image to represent that. Like, I don't know, maybe that's because I'm a creative writing major, but like, yeah. I feel like that's baseline, just like figurative language. It's, you know? it's literally a metaphor. It's, li- it's literally, literally a metaphor. metaphor. <laughs> and that's the thing, like there's so many ways to talk about or confront your um, bigotry and stuff like that without having to dis- like disrespect a community that you're trying to grow from or you're trying to learn about. And I think that there's also just a lack of research that people have within themselves to be like, hello, I'm about to do this thing. And I want to I want to know if this is something that I can do. Let me look up and see if what I'm thinking or my thought process may or may not be transphobic or homophobic or uh, misogynistic or whatever the case may be. Like there's this level of, um, I want to say entitlement or just no blissful ignorance that a lot Mm -hmm. of people have to other people's experiences. They don't want to confront their own issues because specifically sometimes in marginalized communities as well, where they're like, I'm gay, so I can't be racist. Or I'm black, so I can't be homophobic because I know what it's like to be oppressed. It's like, no, two things can be true at the same time. You can both be oppressed and be oppressive. Mm, Say that again. Say that again. (laughs) Two things can exist at the same time. You can be oppressed and be oppressive at the same time. So I think that there's not enough there's not enough understanding of that part. Like the reality is I identify as non-binary and I go by she, her pronouns, but the world still experiences me as a gay black man. So Mm. I still benefit from male privilege. So it's my job as somebody who benefits from male privilege to recognize and protect those who do not benefit from it, who are oppressed from it. It's also recognizing the fact that yes, I identify a certain way, but there are still people in the world who I exert privilege over. Right. Even though it may not be something that even if once somebody knows my identity, it might be something different. But when people look at me and they experience me as I am, without me saying anything, they would automatically give me that privilege. So I think that it's your job as someone who receives whatever kind of privilege it may be to use that privilege, like you said, to amplify those voices, to um, recognize, hey, it's my job to help those who are oppressed to be at a state where they can be heard and seen. Also give them a seat at the table. Like this is just showing me that there wasn't a queer person in that space at all. Not a queer producer, nobody at like the listening party beforehand to just be like, oh, okay, so here are my thoughts, here are my notes that I have for you. Like there was probably not a queer person anywhere at that process because this is a five-year album. Not anywhere in those five years that you even thought about considering the perspective of a queer person asking for their perspective giving them a seat at the table at least Hmm. and i don't really like to give too much um leeway for a lot of people now especially in 2022 Um, i'm not saying that he should be canceled i'm not you know we're not we're not here to cancel people that's not what the show is about but i do think that i'm tired of giving people grace for things mm-hmm. that are obvious. Do you know what I mean? Like, right. I didn't know the N-word was bad. 
I didn't mean to see it. Or I didn't know seeing the F slur could make so many people so mad, even though I'm not gay and I don't suffer that oppression. I just, I don't know why it seems so bad to so many people. It's like that ignorance is no longer okay. It's no longer right. okay now because it's a choice. You're choosing not to be aware of the issue. And if he was, if his growth is so genuine, if he, you know, really reflected on aspects of transphobia in his community in growing up, then he should also be open for feedback and learning and growing even more. And I think that that's my problem with so many people like attacking others for having a critique because it's like, he showed that he at least had some type of, you know, cognitive just like breaking down yeah all of this transphobia in the black community and in the black church he showed some type of growth he showed that he wanted to grow and he wanted to learn and so when people are giving him an opportunity to learn in this instance it's not anybody who is not a part of the queer community to shut down lamar's ability to learn and grow yep on top of being an actress and a comedian, Tiffany Haddish can now add children's book author to her resume. Haddish recently released her children's book, Layla, The Last Black Unicorn, in told, which follows the titular character Layla as she enters her first year of school. Haddish told E that the book was, quote, inspired by my childhood and how different I was and how hard it was for me to fit in realizing that my differences can be my wins and it can help others. So I wanted to share that with kids. Also, growing up, I didn't see too many books by Black female authors, so I thought this was a good way to start kicking that door open, unquote. Haddish wanted to tell a story of self-discovery and self-acceptance journey because Haddish told People Magazine, quote, I think everyone grapples with the questions, who am I? Why am I here? What's my purpose? How do I fit in here? And just being able to take a moment and say, I'm okay with the way I am, even if somebody else doesn't agree. As long as I feel good about how I am, then there's nothing that I need to change, unquote. Haddish hopes that this book can serve as an inspiration for many young people to love and learn how to be themselves, as well as strengthen the bonds between parents and their children by sparking conversation. So, Daquan, I wanted to ask, what was your experience growing up in terms of reading books by Black authors and or having Black protagonists? I'm going to be honest, it was a little <laughs> dry at first. You know, it was a little few and far between. Like, I think growing up, the first book, you know, in a school setting that I remember reading that, like, centered Black voices and Black protagonists, and I'm not sure if it had a Black, I think it did, but the first books that I remember were The Watsons Go to Birmingham and Bud mm -hmm. Not Buddy. And I remember those books so vividly because it was like one of the first times that I feel like I felt represented. And I saw somebody that could very well be somebody related to me, you know, represented. And, you know, growing up even further, like there would be occasions where, you know, you get like a Langston Hughes poem every Black History Month or something like that. And it's like, I think that's also why 
as I got older, I, you know, gravitated towards the Harlem Renaissance because I felt like, oh, the only time Black people were writing were during the Harlem Renaissance. Like, because mm. we don't learn about that history. We don't learn about a whole litany of Black authors and Black books and all of these different things written by Black people, about Black people, for Black people, even at predominantly Black schools, primary schools and secondary schools. And so it's so powerful when you have that representation because it makes you feel seen. It can engage a student that's never really been that engaged before because I'm not going to lie, growing up, like, I was not that big of a reader. Like, there'll be every <laughs> now and then you get that book that I was like, okay, I resonate with this. There's something about this that I see in myself and it's interesting for me. But when you're reading, like, all of the just like classical grapes of a bunch of dead white men that were, you know, so old in the past in like the 16th, 15th, 17th century, you don't have that same connection that you do. And so even getting into college, like that's probably why I was so focused on African-American literature within the field of African-American studies, because all of it was something that I didn't really know was a thing, but just reading about Black people, reading about Black life, seeing the archives and like seeing firsthand people's letters to each other, first manuscripts of things written by Black authors, playwrights, poets was so mind blowing to me because it was like, wow, like these are people who looked like me who did these great things. And it's like, okay, maybe I should take some writing more seriously. Maybe I should do more with my writing and like try to really get myself out there when it comes to writing because these people did it. They set the, you know, they set the bar, they paved the road for people after them. But, you know, unfortunately we have so many different people in our society that are muddying up that road, that are throwing rocks and gravel and everything to make that road hard to go down. But I'm just so happy that, you know, Black people are writing books, you know, Tiffany Haddish writing this children's book, because I think that now is a time where we need more Black authors writing about Black characters and yeah. putting, centering Blackness in these stories, because unfortunately, so many people are trying to take this stuff out of school. So many people are trying to erase black people out of history other than oh martin luther king did a march but they don't want to talk about what the march was for or how martin luther king died or any of that stuff but yeah he did a march this is the only black person we find acceptable we don't want other black characters because then it's going to make the white kids uncomfortable because they're not seeing themselves like oh <laughs> white people not being represented what a concept yeah um I've always had a fondness for YA fantasy stories growing up. And mm -hmm. unfortunately, there were no Black protagonists in any of the stories I read. <laughs> it was, and um, to some degree still is, uh, depressing because for years I searched for leads that reflected my experience. And yet they were very far in between or only halfway there. Like, as a Black person, my race was represented in shows like Martin, Half and Half, and other Black shows. 
Um, and as a gay person, my sexuality was represented in shows like Queer as Folk and Will and Grace. However, I'm not just a gay person and I'm not mm -hmm. just a black person. I'm right. a gay and black person at the same time. And representation for that type of intersectionality did not always exist outside of stereotypical caricatures, religious trauma, or hate crimes. Uh, so, <laughs> so growing up, I never really felt truly seen in the media or represented. And I had no characters that I could identify with because even though I could identify with being Black, many of the Black shows I grew up with were aggressively homophobic. And while I also identify with being gay, the white gay shows I watched growing up were about the white gay experience. If Black gays appeared on the show, they had very little screen time and were just probably background characters for the most part. Um, gay, pe gay Black people aren't afforded the same diversity in storytelling as white gay people, even in 2022. Like, so I understand where Tiffany is coming from because that's where I'm coming from as a gay Black author. Um, I know that for me, I read fantasy stories as a form of escapism. Like, I wanted to immerse myself in a fantasy world where I could identify with the hero, you know, fight the forces of evil and save the day. But as much as I did enjoy the books like, you know, Harry Potter, Hunger Games, Beautiful Creatures, I could never fully be transported into their worlds because all of the leads were white, speaking with white voices and white experiences and living white lives. Like, I want to create the stories I wish I could have had growing up with protagonists that look like me that I can fully connect to. I want Black gay teens to have a story that celebrates how they love, how they speak, and who they are. Because even though shows I watched growing up helped me learn to love who I am and discover my identity, the fact that I had to basically Frankenstein an understanding of who I am instead of just having both of my intersectional identities represented in the media is a problem. But Daquan, I want to ask you though, like, was there a particular book that's helped you in your self-discovery slash self-love journey? Yes. And it came, and it came into like my life, you know, fairly recently. There's this book that's, uh, All Boys Aren't Blue by George M. Johnson, which is this memoir about this gay black man and you know his life and i think that it came at a point that was like so pivotal in my life i just moved to new york and i was just exploring new york and i came across this like pop-up bookshop and i was like okay let me like explore peruse a little bit and i was just like buying a couple books and the guy at the person who was like running the shop asked me like oh what do you do and i was like i'm a teacher and he was like oh you are and he just started handing me book after book after book <laughs> and this was a book that i saw and i was like i want it but like i'm not sure if i can get it like you know there's other books right here that i think would be more interesting i just didn't like see it but i knew that like i knew when he handed me that book i was like okay, this is a sign that I need to read this book, that there's something in this book that I need on my journey. And so I read bits and pieces of it every now and then, but it really, I really started getting deep into it after 
I left my teaching job and I was just like unemployed in New York City, not knowing like, what was I doing? Like, what was my life? Where was I going to go? Like, how am I going to go about life? And I would just take these walks in Central Park, find somewhere and just sit and read this book. And I was literally cry sometimes because I saw that Black queer representation that I've never really saw in books. It was so powerful because there were so many situations that I was like, wow, like that's an experience that matches minds. Those are feelings that I had going through college that matched minds. And so I was like, this is the representation that I needed. This was literally telling me that your experience you know, of course, is unique to your own, but also people are going through similar things. People are feeling similar things. So you and your experience is not alone. And, you know, this is one of the books that, you know, is being targeted by this book ban that's happening all across America where, you know, they're trying to keep these books out of stores and everything's because it's corrupting the youth or whatever. And it's yeah. like, this was a super powerful book for me that I encountered being 22. And I can only imagine like how much of a difference it would have made even just a couple of years earlier, finding this book at like 18 or 19. And so again, this is why representation is so important because it's like, I felt so hurt. Like I was literally going through an experience where I was just like numb to the outside world. And then all of a sudden I'm bawling in Central Park. And like, I'm not one of those people to cry. Like, I no, I don't show emotions, especially in public, but this book right here did a number on me. <laughs> I, for me, um, the book that changed my life, honestly, and still does, like it's, it's one of the most influential, influential pieces of literature I've ever read. And it's Who Owns the Ice House. Um, and Daquan already yes. knows. <laughs> um, it's by Clifton Tolbert and um, Gary Schoenerger, I think his last name is. But it was such a powerful piece of just, it's, it, was, it, it was honestly all the life advice that I needed at the time that I got it. Because for me, we had to read this story, me and Daquan, um, for our class, uh, our entrepreneur class, um, what was it? Service learning? Yeah, service yes, learning. Service learning. And you know, it was the, one of the last classes I took in my senior year. And I have to say that in that particular school, also the teacher as well, um, it shaped everything that I do even now. Like the lessons that I learned from that book were more influential and important than anything I learned in the fucking 12 years I was in school. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like in my entire, you know, tenure as a, as a student, you know, even when I was in college, like this book has taught me so much more about life and living than any book I've ever read. And it's because once again, it was somebody who looked like me telling the story, someone who understood being black and what that means in that story. And also giving me advice, the father that I never had, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Basically imparting on me this wisdom that I would have never gotten had I not read this story and had I not, you know, um, taken that, hadn't taken that class. And it was so powerful to me. I always go back to, I think I've told the story on the podcast before, but the opportunity lesson um, with Miss James, our teacher, 
um, was such a fucking powerful, <laughs> it was so powerful to me because basically the whole thing is, you know, you miss 100% of the opportunity you don't take. But sometimes some people are so, you know, wrapped up in all of the fears of what happens if they do take it and don't take it and weighing the options that sometimes the opportunity passes by them altogether. And right. so this particular teacher, when we were taking this test, it was a, a test. And at the end of the, at the end of the test, it said at the beginning, read all the questions of the test. And at the end of the test, it said, if you read all the questions on the test, um, go ahead and write 100 on your paper and then turn it in because you found the golden opportunity. And it was only a 15 minute window for us to be able to do that. But I was just sitting there and I was just second guessing myself. Well, this can't be real. It's not, it's not real. Like I can't do that. Like it's not, it's not, I don't know. And just second guessing myself, second guessing myself over and over and over again. The time ran out and the opportunity was lost. And I realized then that if you don't take a chance on yourself, the rest of the world won't either. Mm. If you don't believe in yourself, nobody else will. Even if it does feel like it's, you know, crazy or outlandish, as long as you've done your research, as long as you, you know, have weighed the options in a reasonable amount of time, what are you going to lose? What do you have to lose? Literally. And I think that's so important because so many times people who look like us, people who are marginalized are told by society that they don't deserve these opportunities mm -hmm. and then we begin to internalize that and so when that golden opportunity comes it's like i, I this this can't be for me i can't Ooh. possibly deserve this opportunity because i've been told so many times that i don't deserve it that i don't deserve to achieve these levels and it's like no you deserve any opportunity that comes on your doorstep let me say that again. You deserve any opportunity that knocks on your door because that is your opportunity to take. And, you know, there will be a time when you take an opportunity and it doesn't end up happening like you wanted Envisioned, to. Be. Like yeah. I took this job teaching and I was like, oh, like, this is a great opportunity. Like, this is exactly what I want to be doing. Like, this school has all of my, you know, all of my social justice mindset, but then it wasn't the opportunity that I thought it was, mm -hmm. but it ended up still leaving me in a better place than I was before. And so even mm. if I never took that opportunity, I probably would not have been here because yeah, it's a fail quote unquote, because the opportunity didn't end up being as golden as I thought it would be, but I still moved forward. I still learned from it. I still grew from it and I'm at a better place now than I was before. So still golden in my eyes. Exactly. And I also think that people really need to be aware of the fact that you really have to take a chance on yourself because nobody else is like nobody else is. The world is not a very fair place. And so the fact that, you know, you have to, and I, I don't like the term because I mean, I've seen this thing on TikTok. People, people are like, be delusional or whatever, like be delusional, you know? And I'm just like, no, it's not delusion. It's knowing right. your worth. It's knowing your talent. <laughs> I know so my worth. Like, exactly. So know who you are, know that you are that bitch and let the world see and experience you as that bitch. <laughs> so when are you taking this opportunity to publish a book? Oh, baby, it's coming this year. <laughs> oh, baby, you ain't got to worry about that. 
<laughs> it's coming, baby. Oh, it's coming. But that's a conversation for another day. Recently, the Grammy-nominated singer Kehlani broke their silence about their interview with The Morning Cussle and how disrespected they felt. The 27-year-old artist who has said in the past that they prefer using they-them pronouns, but also use she-her, shared on their Instagram story, quote, I was gonna remain silent. Every other interview has been super bubbly, warm, informative, and open. From start to finish, this interview was cringy, a lot of mockery and invasive as fuck, end quote. The interview kicked off Rocky with one of the hosts introducing Kehlani stating, quotes, they are here and they is she and she is with us. She goes by the name Kehlani, end quotes. The interview continued with the host asking questions such as if they ever scissored with SZA, if Kehlani knew who her girlfriend was, and other things that made them feel embarrassed and uncomfortable. The other hosts clapped back at the singer, saying that Kehlani doesn't respect urban media and was rude from the start, end quotes. If there's an artist that has a problem with answering questions, do not come to the Morning Custle Show, or please get media training. If there's a question you don't want to answer, as a grown-up, say, I don't want to answer that, and you move on. If someone addresses you by the wrong thing, you correct them, and you move on. Good luck with your album. I heard it only sold 21,000 copies. Maybe that's why you're doing all of this, end quote. So, Andre... I want to ask you, what are your thoughts on this situation and how it was handled? Daquan, um, I hope you have your library card because I do. Uh, the library is absolutely open. Uh, <laughs> it's time to read because waiting is what's fundamental. fundamental. Um, first and foremost, um, I wanted to address the supposed clapback this host gave. Um, I'm really getting tired of people trying to fault their rude and disrespectful behavior on those who are subjected to it, because let's really break it down. Um, we've seen time and again where the artist or their manager has given the talk show host a list of questions to steer clear of, and they still ask. We've seen time and time again where celebrities have tried to steer clear of answering a question that has made them uncomfortable and the hosts keep pressing onward until they get the answer they want or a negative reaction that they can use to say that the artist was what being difficult. Um, a prime example of this is the Avengers interviews with Scarlett Johansson and Jeremy Renner. In the clip, the interviewer Asked Scarlett what she wears underneath her costume for the movie. And when she made it clear that she was uncomfortable with the question and didn't want to answer, the interviewer didn't just let it go and move on. No, he kept going until he pressured her into answering. And Scarlett Johansson has had plenty of media training. And don't even get me started on how defensive cishet people get when you correct them on your pronouns. Um, to many of them, gender-affirming language is a joke, which was clearly displayed in how they introduced Kehlani. Um, had Kehlani said anything in the interview that would have labeled her as being difficult or said that they were just joking and people need to lighten up and so on and so forth, I mean, there would 
there wouldn't have been any moving on. There wouldn't have been any correction and probably would have escalated the already uncomfortable interview into a whole new level of uncomfort. And lastly, that little job, little, little, little jab, little jeer at Kalani's album sales just shows how unprofessional these interviewers, quote unquote, really are. Um, instead of admitting that they were disrespectful and apologizing for how uncomfortable they made someone they interviewed, they immediately went on the defensive and started to attack. Kalani merely stated how uncomfortable they were at being interviewed by these hosts, and their response was to throw juvenile schoolyard jabs. It's giving very much the same energy of, oh, yeah, well, that's why you ugly anyway. <laughs> and baby, you were the one who asked Kalani to be on your show, not the other way around. So let's get it together before you want to read. Um, and I'm 100% certain that we don't have to explain why their line of questioning was clearly out of pocket, but I'll explain it anyway. And it's very simple. <clears throat> don't ask people about their sex lives. It's none of your fucking business who anyone is or isn't fucking. But take one. I want to pass the question back to you. Uh, what are your thoughts on the situation and how it was handled? Child. I'm going to just say this. <laughs> the class was not there. I didn't see any class. I didn't see any glamour. I didn't see any poise. I didn't see anybody being cordial. <laughs> because this is not how you respond to somebody saying how uncomfortable they were during your... It, like, that's... The clapback was just a whole different thing. But even, like, I watched part of the interview. You know, I, I saw it, you know, just so I know, like, what was going mm -hmm. on. And literally... When the when one of the hosts was being like they and she and they, it was just already, it already. so cringy. Like it's like you can say somebody has they them uses they them pronouns and you know sometimes uses she her pronouns without doing all of that mockery. Like it didn't call for all of that, and so it's just also like as a non-binary person, like. Huh. That's not how you go about using somebody's pronouns. You can simply state it plainly like, oh, this is Kaylani. They use she, they pronouns. They use they, she pronouns. And you move on with the interview. Or in the interview, you, you know, mix up your pronoun uses. You might start with they, you might move to she, her, and then move back to they, however they feel comfortable. But when you start an interview like that, I literally saw Kehlani close up so much because I yeah. felt that discomfort. It was super cringy. And for you to just like go afterwards and be like, get some, many, get some media training. How about you get some media training? How about you learn, take a class on how to interview somebody? Because you don't like, obviously you didn't do your research about Kehlani because you were like, oh, you know, this person, this artist, do you, do you know? And it's like, that's literally who they're dating. Like doing just a bit of Googling would have told you that. And so it just overall felt like something that was so just disrespectful. Like the disrespect Incredibly. was real. And like, I don't think artists should need to like, just stand for it. They should be able to be like, Hey, I felt disrespected for in this situation. And as an adult, if that wasn't your intentions, you'd be like, all right, I hear you. I hear that you feel disrespected. I don't want to disrespect you any further. And you treat it like 
you treat them like an adult. You don't go for a schoolyard clap back. And it's like, you act like an adult. You're calling other people childish and everything like that when you're the one being childish. It's like, it's not giving the clap back that you thought it would be, but you thought you, I also, <laughs> you thought it you also brings up this question of just like, do you think that you know female and queer artists are disrespected more in interviews or get more you know personal and invasive questions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think specifically, you know, cishet people believe they are entitled to ask any question they want because in their eyes, anyone who isn't a straight white man is being given a privilege to occupy a space with them. They believe that marginalized communities don't have the right to privacy like they do because society has made straight white men the standard and everyone else is just vying to get to their level. It's patriarchy, it's white supremacy, it's fetishization, and, and so many other isms wrapped into one. It's like they are saying, um, I'm doing you a favor by allowing you to be here. Um, so you have to do whatever I tell you or I'll push you right back down the totem pole of privilege. You know what I'm saying? And mm, I think yeah. we've seen this so many times, especially with trans um, people, when they get on these interviews and they're talking about, you know, their new project or something like that, and people are going like, oh yeah, um, so do you have a penis or a vagina? Or what's between right. your legs? Like, what was I don't the know if you remember this. Like? I don't Did know, I don't know if you remember this, Daquan. Do you remember that interview? I think it was Carmen Carrera um on the Katie Couric, I think it was, where yeah. uh as soon as as soon as Cameron Carrera sat down, she was like, uh the, the host was like, Oh, so your private parts are different. And then Cameron was like, what? Hold on. Hello? How am I doing? Um, am I here? <laughs> right. Is no. This... Hi. How are you doing? Welcome, our guest. None of that. And it's like, it's only towards people like that. And then the scissoring question, like, nothing, like, what the fuck is wrong with y'all? Like, I mean, like, Daquan, I don't even, like, it's like, why would you, what, what made you think that that was something to be asked about in an interview about her upcoming album and her life like what the fuck and i just i think it's really disrespectful i think it's really disgusting and it all comes from that entitlement they're like baby you're not supposed to be here so we're allowing you so girl we're gonna do what the fuck we want to do and we're gonna ask what the fuck we want to ask but daquan what about you what do you think i completely agree i think that you know you know female and queer people get so invasive questions from interviewers because i think the biggest thing is people believe since you are quote unquote the other yeah. that it's your job to explain yourself and your humanity to others mm -hmm. oh i don't understand pronouns you have to you have to explain that to me mm -hmm. oh i don't understand your sexuality you have to explain that to me and it's like we live in 2022 there is google there is being there is Yahoo, <laughs> there are so many different search engines just choose whichever a book better <laughs> you like there's a book there's <laughs> anthologies atlases there's all of these encyclopedias and so i think that absolutely you know especially trans people get so such invasive questions and it's like you know, even in the situation about, you know, scissoring and it's like, even if somebody, I don't, I haven't heard a lot of Kehlani's music. I don't know her, you know, discography, but even if she talks about, you know, doing something with somebody in a song, that's it. Like they that's said it. everything that they, 
need to say on that song and you leave it at that you don't have to you know dig any more to figure it out like no they shared what they wanted to share and that you leave it at that and it's like maybe it's not even real you know people write songs and just say things because they want to write it in a song but it's never appropriate to ask somebody something about in the bedroom because I don't think they would do the same thing with a cishet white male that they do not. with all these other people. So it's really giving invasion. It's really giving being too personal. And I just, I need it to stop. It's inappropriate. And what really gets me too is this whole need to understand. It's kind right. of like, I don't have to explain. Like, there are so many people. For me, I don't like that question of like, when people ask me all the time, well, why do you go by she, her pronouns that you're non-binary? Why not they? Because I do. Like, oh. <laughs> they want to say one more time. I'll finish her. Because I do. Like, if there's so, I block immediately. Like, I, that question I block immediately because I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't dignify you with an explanation. If I choose, if some people choose to explain and stuff like that, that's fine. But it's like, it's, it, it pisses me off because I've even had people on dating apps ask me too, like, well, why do you go by she or pronouns? Block, I'm done. I don't have to, because I don't, I don't, I shouldn't have to explain this to you, especially mm -hmm. as someone in the LGBTQIA community. I can't explain to you why I'm gay. I can't explain to you why I like men. I, ca I can't explain to you why I'm non-binary or why I go by she or pronouns. It's just who I am. It's just right. what feels natural to me. So you don't, I don't owe you shit. Like, I don't owe you an explanation. I don't, I don't, I shouldn't have to be like, oh, well, because be she, her, da, 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 whatever. I don't, I don't have to do that shit. I don't have to. And I think people need to get the fuck out of that headspace. There are people who go by neo pronouns, all kind of pronouns that I like that are, uh, or just go by their names and stuff like that. And it's like, if you tell me something and you say, this is how I want to identify, this is who I am, end of discussion. Period. Like, I, again, as another non-binary person, I get the question so many times, and it's like, I'm not obligated to explain it to you. There are times where I do have that conversation with people, you know? Yeah. And most of the times, it's because they come at me from a perspective where they understand boundaries. Like, yes. instead of just asking it flat out, they'll be like, hey, can I ask you a question? Yes. And if I say no, they'll be like, all right, I'm not going to ask. But then I say yes. And then it's like, all right, that you established that you understand my boundaries. You demonstrated that you don't want to come off as disrespectful. It's a genuine curiosity and not just you trying to like read somebody or anything like that. And then it's like, okay, then I'll explain like this person was asking, oh, you know, what does it mean when somebody uses he, they, like, mm -hmm. is it? only he they like is it i've seen he him his before i've seen they them theirs before but mm -hmm. i never seen he they before and then i explained like what that means and what somebody who identifies that way or uses those pronouns what they could mean because you know everybody treats pronouns differently and so yeah. it's all about setting that intention up front being like, can I ask you a question about pronouns? And then being respectful enough to where if somebody says no, you accept that. And you move Yeah, and on. I think I think that there's a lot of, uh, the thing that gets me oftentimes that what frustrates me and the reason why I block so quickly sometimes is because of the fact that a lot of time it's accusatory. The tone. Mm. The tone is not, hey, I'm just wondering and curious, if you don't mind me asking, um, what, what helped you know that your pronouns were this? You know what I'm saying? 
What helped right. you realize you were non-binary? These are questions that come from a place of love or come from a place of respect. Like, why, what made you what made you discover this about yourself? Versus, why do you go by these pronouns? It doesn't make sense. You're supposed to be non-binary. Non-binary is they, them. And that's why I hear a lot, even surprisingly, from people in the LGBTQI community, too, who'll be like, why do you do that? It doesn't make any sense. Oh, it doesn't? Blocked. You ain't gonna, it, ain't gonna, it ain't gonna make sense to you, baby. You can never see me again. You gotta worry about it. <laughs> I'm gonna keep it at buck ninety eight because you can keep those two cents. <laughs> Block. Now the table is always hot with current events and social issues, but sometimes the heat can get a little intense. Let's turn the temp down, take a breather, and get into this week's topic cool down. Andre, what are you bringing to the table? So today, Daquan, I have a interesting cool down. Um, I wanted to ask you, do you ever miss someone who you no. cut off to? <laughs> no! You can finish the question. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, do you ever miss someone? Do you ever miss someone who you cut off to protect your energy? <laughs> Absolutely not. If I cut somebody off to protect my energy, it's to protect my energy. That's it. As long as my energy is protected, there's nothing to regret. Yeah. You know, I I think we've established so many times on this podcast that my energy is sacred to me. And I really value my energy because I know my worth and I respect my worth. And so if you are bringing such negativity in my into my life and you are you know degrading my energy so much that i need to block you or cut you off then that is that like i'm generally a ch pretty chill person like it takes yeah. a lot to really make me mad so when you bring me to that point you've done a whole lot of things that's i just personally i can't deal with anymore and so I block you to protect my energy. And honestly, it hasn't happened a lot of the time, a lot of times. Like the people that I think of when I think of this question and who I've cut off, I don't miss them at all because I think more often I miss the ignorance that I had when mm. I was with them. I think about how, you know, unbothered I was back then or how unhurt I was even when we were going through different things like there was a version of me back then that was a little bit more innocent and a little bit more you know optimistic about that yeah. relationship that now I'm just like well this person hurt me in a certain way that like I don't really want them in my life because I don't want to give them the opportunity to hurt me in that way again and so cut off but, you know, I miss that version of me more than I miss the actual person that I cut off. Yeah. I think this question was supposed to be a cool down, but it kind of hits a little home to me. That's why I brought it up. Um, because on the show, we honest. We come, we yeah. come correct. Um, but recently, um, I had to cut off someone I loved out of my life because they chose not to respect the fact that I went by she, her pronouns. Um, this person was my best friend for almost five years and cutting them off was one of the most difficult things I've had to do in a long time. Um, 
I tried everything to fix it, you know, followed all the rules on how to approach someone when they've hurt you, went to a therapist, the works. And when we finally had our, you know, final confrontation, they still chose to argue, discredit my feelings and gaslight me into believing that I was the one at fault. So I broke off all contact with them and we haven't spoken since, you know, I was in... I still am pretty heartbroken by the experience. Um, there are days when I wish that I could have ignored how my friend using he, him pronouns when talking to me made me feel, but I couldn't. Um, when I was around him, I just felt drained because every time he didn't use my preferred pronouns, it triggered my gender dysphoria and slowly made me begin to hate being around him altogether. And I gave him chance after chance and explained to him several times that I was non-binary and my pronouns are she, her, hers, but he just refused to understand and respect that. Um, as much pain as this person put me through towards the end of our friendship, I still miss him. Um, I don't regret ending the friendship. I don't regret protecting my energy because like Daquan said, your energy is sacred. Um, and... I'm not upset about not tolerating that disrespect anymore, but I, I still miss who he was to me. You know, mm. that person was like a brother to me and I loved him. And it's incredibly painful to know that I can't call him anymore and that we're never hanging out again and that he's no longer allowed in my life. Um, it's hard when you realize you have to let go of someone you love to protect your peace. But, you know, if they really loved you, they would do everything in their power to make sure they never became a disruption to your peace in the first place. Right. Um, I think it's okay to miss someone who hurt you. It's okay to remember the love you once shared between each other, but you have to remember that no person's love is worth you sacrificing your happiness and comfort, you know? And I think that yeah. that's what I had to kind of deal with. You know, it's, it's really, it's really hard to do that. It's really hard to cut someone out because you like, like Daquan, I'm like, I'm the same way when it comes to people. I try to give chance at the chance at the chance, you know, I try to say, Hey, like we can work through this. We can get forward. But at the, at, there's a certain point where you're like, all right, bitch. All right. I choose me. I choose me. Right. You know, have you ever run into that Daquan? Like anybody, even if it's not necessarily a cutoff, but somebody who said we're done. Like you're done. <laughs> like oh, absolutely. I think the biggest thing was, you know, college. Because I think mm. for so long, you have people that are in your life because they're almost forced into your life. You probably hang around the same circle, yeah. you may be in the same classes, extracurriculars, X, Y, and Z. So you're kind of forced to be together. Yeah, And so I think that for the longest time, there was people where I was forced to be with them because we had circles that co-aligned. But then graduating college, it was like, all right, these, you know, these things that forced us together are no longer in forcing place. us together, yeah. are no longer in place. And so it was my choice to be like, do I still want to try to deal with this relationship have another fresh start after having yeah. fresh start after fresh start after fresh start and it really came down to 
you know, this role that this person was in in my life, like not to be like utilitarian or be like, oh, you have to be like X useful to me or whatever, yeah. but like the role that they played in my life, I could feel elsewhere. And I think that's the hardest thing is if somebody is like, you know, a brother to you and they feel like that hole in your heart, when you cut them off, it's so hard and you're going to miss that part that was filled. Um, but for me in this situation, it was like, no, I did not like being disrespected. Mm -hmm. I did not like having my character defamed and, mm -hmm. you know, all of these situations. And I didn't like me feeling like I needed to expend so much more energy in a relationship than that person did, even though we, quote unquote, like had that same like you know, feelings towards each other and like how we identify as best friends or whatever. And so I was just like, I'm done. This situation, I'm not going to deal with because frankly, I don't have that energy to go out and like deal with everything of adulthood and still have to deal with petty college, high school type <laughs> drama. Like, no, I'm growing up, I'm moving on and Frankly, you are not obligated to my life. And so I'm going to set this hard boundary, cut it off. If somewhere down the road we talk again, oh, well. But like as at this moment, no, I'm not going to give you any opportunity because that gives you an opportunity to hurt me in the same way that you hurt me before. So protecting my energy. Yeah, I don't have my scissors. Wait, <laughs> you do? You do? Get <laughs> They're different scissors. <laughs> but yeah, no, I really feel you though, Daquan. I think that there's a part of all of us who looks for certain people to fill certain spaces in our lives, and I think mm -hmm. that sometimes, you know, in life, you have to make difficult decisions. And I think that when you grow up and you mature and you start to evaluate your life in a different way. You know what I'm saying? When you become more socially aware, you start unpacking your transphobia, homophobia, your internalized racism, massage noir, all that stuff. When you start doing the work to um, see who you really are and to confront your own faults, um, it becomes a lot more difficult to be friends with superficial people. Right. who are not also doing that work, who are not also open to being criticized. You know, I've made it very clear in my life, you know, a lot of the friends that I have come from very different walks of life. But one of the things that I think that bonds a lot of my friendships together now in this at, at 23 uh, versus when I was a kid is that now I'm not so much looking for friends as I'm looking for uh, or just a quantity, but looking for quality in friendships. So right. I understand what you mean about not necessarily being utilitarian, but also understanding are we helping each other grow? Are we fostering real communication with each other to um, become better people? Do you make me a better person? Do I help make you a better person? You know what I'm saying? Like, and I think that that's what real friendship is. A real friend is not going to sit there and just be like, oh, yeah, girl, you ate all the time. You don't ever do anything wrong. That's fake. That's not real. That's superficial. A real friend be right. like, hey, bitch, you fucked up. You did. You right. did. Or and even just some... like... Do you feel happy around this person? Yeah. Because there are just yeah. 
you know, in terms of people that I cut off, it wasn't, I feel happy around this person. It's, I feel like I have to walk on eggshells. I feel like I have to, you know, coddle what I want to say and things I want to do to just completely cater to the, to the wants of and desires of this other person. And it's like, no, I'm a human being too. There are things that I want to do. There are things that I want to say. And, you know, of course, like there's all different types of compromises and stuff like that that happens in relationships. Mm -hmm. But if it's only you compromising for this other person, that's not truly a compromise. That's not truly a great relationship. At all. Um, now, so many children grow up never knowing the full scope of what their culture has contributed to society and history. So, Daquan, I think it's time for a change. Let's take a pause, rewind, and remind the world just how we did that. In the article, Famous African Americans, we learn about Esther Roll, an American actress known for her performances on CBS television sitcoms. Born on November 8th, 1920 in Pompano Beach uh, to Jonathan and Elizabeth Roll, Roll's first screen appearance was for an uncredited role in Robert Mulligan's To Kill a Mockingbird in 1962. Roll then appeared in The Learning Tree alongside her sister, Estelle Evans, in 1969. She shot to prominence once she started acting for the incredibly famous sitcom Mod in 1972, playing Florida Evans, an open-minded, no-nonsense housekeeper to the lead character of the show. The role of Florida Evans was so popular that Roll was granted a spinoff series in 1974 titled Good Times, in which she played the lead role. In 1975, she was nominated for a Golden Globe for her performance in Good Times. In 1979, Roll also acted in the movie Summer of My German Soldier, for which she won an Emmy. After Good Times, Roll mostly acted in direct-to-TV movies. She was in Driving Miss Daisy in 1989 and Peter Seagal's My Fellow Americans. One of her more famous roles was in Fielder Cook's I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings, which was based on Maya Angelou's memoir. She also acted in John Singleton's Rosewood in 1997. All in all, she acted for 15 stage plays from 1965 to 1989 and 22 separate television roles from 1964 to 1998. She died on on November 17, 1998 in Culver City, California at 78 due to complications from her diabetes. But Daquan, I got to say, baby, Esther Rowe was booked and blessed, booked and busy. (laughs) Period. Black women. Black women, black women, black women, black women. (laughs) We love to see it. And so my We Did That comes from blackpast.org, where we learned that Octavius Valentine Caddo was a prominent Philadelphia, Pennsylvania activist, scholar, athlete, and military officer in the National Guard during the Civil War. In Philadelphia, by 1854, he became a student at the Institute for Colored Youth, now Cheney University, and graduated as valedictorian in 1858. Cato furthered his studies in Washington, D.C., 
and upon his return, became an instructor of literature, mathematics, Greek, and Latin at the Institute for Colored Youth. Cato founded the Banneker Literary Institute and the Pennsylvania Equal Rights League in October 1864. He was a member of several other civic, literary, patriotic, and political groups, including the Philadelphia Library Company, Fourth Ward Bank Black Political Club, and the Franklin Institute. After the Civil War, Cattle started a Philadelphia protest movement that led to the passage of the 1867 Pennsylvania law that prohibited racially segregated public transportation. Later the same year, Cato and his childhood friend, Jacob White Jr., formed the city's second black baseball team, the Phil Philadelphia Pythians, of which he was a co-manager and player. On election day, October 10th, 1871, Cato was murdered along with several other blacks in a Philadelphia riot when local African-Americans attempted to vote as a result of the state's ratification of the 15th Amendment. Mm, black people. <laughs> Period. Like, being an activist in the 1800s? It's, it's crazy. Like, talk, huh, talk about bad bitch energy. Huh, talk right. about... <laughs> But as always, thank you all so much for watching and keep the conversation going down in the comment box below. Don't forget to give this video a thumbs up. And if you are listening to us on our podcast, please rate and review on whatever platform you're using. You can also follow our podcast on Instagram and TikTok at The Melanin Margin for updates of new content. And if you'd like to follow each of us, our handles are at DaquanMUE and at Andre Talks A Lot. Now, we will see you all next week on the Melanin Margin, where our goal is always to bring to the marginalized to the spotlight in any way we can. Goodbye now. <laughs>